This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. This week, I turn my mic over to a guest host for an interview with Dr. Jerry Roach about the growing field of systems biology. Zoe Gray is a math major honor student at Cal Poly. She has a background in electrical engineering and is particularly interested in considering the pace of technological development and the ethics of a system of technological production that moves so quickly. Dr. Jared Roach, MD, PhD, is a senior research scientist at the Institute for Systems Biology. Starting as a graduate student in the 1990s, Dr. Roach worked on the Human Genome Project from its early days through to the end of the project. Dr. Roach contributed strategic and algorithmic design to the Human Genome Project, including the pairwise and sequencing strategy. He was a senior fellow at the Department of Molecular Biotechnology at the University of Washington from 1999 to 2000. In 2001, he became a research scientist at the Institute for Systems Biology. His group currently applies systems biology and genomics to complex diseases, focusing on the systems biology architecture of Alzheimer's disease. Hi, Dr. Roach. Um, How are you today? Uh, Hi, Zoe. Um, I'm good. Uh, Well, I'd like to start off by asking you about your current research at the Institute for Systems Biology. What does it mean to take a systems biology approach to clinical trials? And how is this approach different from the current expected form of a clinical trial? So I direct the Alzheimer's and dementia clinical trials for the Institute for Systems Biology. We have a partnership with Providence St. Joseph Health, which is one of the largest hospital systems in the United States. It has hospitals from Alaska to Texas, including a a fair number in Washington and California. So ISB is in some ways a a research organization, and it's paired with Providence St. Joseph Health, who historically has been a very clinically oriented hospital system. And so together, we're able to combine our strengths and do innovative clinical trials. Providence is originally a Christian organization. It has nuns on its board of directors and is really interested in some of the, the sort of elements of Catholic faith in, in terms of delivering health care. So it wants to reach out to everyone, not just the privileged. It wants to reach out to people who are traditionally don't have access to health care, whether that's in rural areas or otherwise are, are don't uh, maybe in, in, in they don't have a lot of money, right? And they don't have normal access to healthcare. So in that sense, we want to develop uh, and discover and do research that will serve everybody on the planet uh, eventually. And so it, one of the biggest medical problems that we face as, as human beings is dementia. Uh, a huge fraction of the world's population will go on at some point in their life and develop dementia and die with it and or of it. Alzheimer's disease is one form, is a particular, particularly common form of dementia. And in addition to causing people to lose their memories, in many cases, it's actually directly responsible for their deaths. It's also incredibly painful for people who have to care for Alzheimer's disease. So this is a disease not just of individuals who have the disease, but of all of their family and their caregivers and society. 
and it's very expensive. And so we've selected Alzheimer's disease as a particularly important problem to study with innovative new methods for learning uh, that have become available really in the last few decades. A lot of things have been changed. If you may have noticed over the last few decades, a lot of things in the world are changing rapidly. A lot of technologies are changing. Information science is changing. Computers are becoming more powerful. Artificial intelligence is becoming more powerful. Companies are leveraging information to increase their commerce opportunities. Uh, and so science, too, has opportunities to change and, and really advance and change the way we generate knowledge. Most of the scientific establishment has been doing science roughly the same way since the Renaissance. We have departments where we have professors and chairs and PhD students that are organized roughly the same way they were in the 17th century. And we think about knowledge using a lot of things that we learned in the 17th century, but for the most part, the area of, of medical knowledge is governed by the epistemology of the 20th century when we invented statistics. So R.A. Fisher and others in the early 20th century came up with mathematical methods to quantify knowledge, things like p-values and effect sizes, sort of things. R.A. Fisher was a, an agricultural scientist in Britain. He his, was really interested in increasing crop yields and moving bull manure, how to figure out which, where to put the manure in fields and how much manure to fields you measure everything. So he was, statistics is rooted in, in bull manure. <laughs> but it was really useful. And one of the reasons that statistics was so effective and popular for 20th century knowledge generation was because in the 19th century, medical knowledge had really gone off the tracks. In fact, be honest with you, it's probably been off the tracks since the dawn of humanity in many ways. But this concept of snake oil and snake oil salesmen was sort of a, a 19th century concept where almost anybody could say almost anything they wanted about medicine and people might believe it, it'd be advertised, people would take all kinds of medicines and not necessarily for their benefit. My grandfather was a family practice doctor uh, in uh, upstate New York. You know, and I and he he treated people in his house. He's a little office in the front room. You know, I I still root around and find old things, but you know, he would shine UV lights on people to you know, give them, I'm sure, horrible sunburns to treat something. And some of his medicines were arsenic to, to treat. I'm not quite sure what. And so there was really a need in the 20th century to change the way we think about medicine. That really took off, in part because also early in the 20th century. The chemical industry also took off, the starting in Germany with the ability to synthesize new chemicals. The, the pairing of medical science and chemical synthesis led to the development of the pharmaceutical industry. And so we then needed to be able, and we were able to apply medicine and statistics to all these new pharmaceuticals to come up with wonder drugs, things like antibiotics, things like cancer chemotherapeutics, almost every successful drug that you could think of off the top of your head came from this marriage of statistics and, and chemistry. Organizations like the FDA in the United States developed to help regulate and control this industry. And what's happened, as wonderful as all of this drug development has been, is it's locked the whole system into a particular way of doing things that we've not, that was innovative in 19, 1910 and is now straightjacketing all of research. And it's 
As a result, even as these other industries like information science and commerce have advanced tremendously, biomedical science has not grabbed hold of new ways of doing science yet, at least not in general. There's plenty of of areas of light. I hope the Institute for Systems Biology is one. In Alzheimer's disease in particular, we have suffered from the straitjacketing in part because also around the time of the 19, of 1900 or so, this guy named Awa Alzheimer, who also borrowed a little bit of, of credit from another guy named Oscar Fisker, but Awa Alzheimer got his name on the disease, uh, took advantage of these new chemicals, these dyes, in this case, dyes, not pharmaceuticals, to stain uh, the brains of, of people who recently died and discovered plaques in their brains and named this disease that we now know as Alzheimer's based on, on these diseases. Because of what AWA Alzheimer did, as well as others, it was thought that these amyloid plaques, the amyloid being the chemical in these brains, caused Alzheimer's disease. And that, that hypothesis ruled all of Alzheimer's disease research for 100 years, until about 10 years ago. Uh, and it was thought that all you had to do was go to one of these pharmaceutical companies, come up with a drug that removed the Alzheimer's plaques from your, the amyloid plaques from your brains, and you'd cure Alzheimer's disease. The wonderful thing about being an experimentalist is you have a hypothesis that if you remove the amyloid plaques from people's brains, it should cure Alzheimer's disease. You would wait to test that for get a drug that does that, which is amazing in itself. I find it absolutely mind-boggling that we were actually able to come up with a drug to do that, but we did, and it was an absolute disaster. We've, pharmaceutical companies have come up with several drugs now. You remove the amyloid from people's brains. They get blame breeds. They end up worse off. Their cognition probably doesn't improve much, but because we tried and failed 10 years ago, and we continue to fail using that, that approach, it's now really opened the minds up of everyone in the field, including myself, that, wow, maybe there are multiple causes of Alzheimer's disease. Maybe amyloid's not the main problem. Maybe different people need different therapies. Maybe different people have different reasons for having dementia. Even people with diagnosis of Alzheimer's, not everyone with Alzheimer's necessarily has Alzheimer's for the same reason. So you have a complex disease. Maybe the answer to treating it is not a single drug. Maybe it's not even something from the pharmaceutical industry. To treat a complex disease, you might need a complex multimodal therapy. And maybe that therapy is a collection of things that might not be surprising. It might be sort of what you might call common sense, like exercise more, change your diet, stimulate your brain, and maybe, maybe also take some drugs too, if it's appropriate. Improve your general health. If you have diabetes, cure your diabetes. If you have hypertension, work on that. More generally speaking, Let's really look at you as an individual, personalize your therapy, and give you complex intervention as opposed to simple intervention. Of course, if I put my 20th century statistical hat on, <laughs> I'd say you can't do that. That's not the way science is done. There's no simple statistical test I can do. There's, if you do your experiment, I'll be so confused. I don't know which, what to do a p-value on. There's too much knowledge, too much information. I can't analyze it. And so in addition to coming up with these new hypotheses, I have to use new tools to generate new knowledge. And the good news is a lot of things that used to be almost impossible to imagine have now become fairly routine. I can get lots of data fairly quickly. I can sequence someone's genome, sequence, I can measure all of the proteins and the metabolites in their blood. I can scan their brain. 
I can generate all kinds of data. I can have them wear a little ring that tells me what their heart rate is and how much exercise they're getting. I could get all kinds of continuous data. So I can get a vast amount of data and I can analyze it in a way that's more comprehensive, more mechanistic to try to understand the causality of connections in, in a person and diagnose what's their go, go, going on with them and then maybe how to treat them and get them better. For someone who's not a biomedical scientist, this is obviously the way you generate knowledge. Like if you take your car to the car mechanic, the car mechanic doesn't say, oh, hmm, it's not stopping as quickly as you'd like. Well, I've done some statistics and 70% of the time, the problem is your brake pads. So I'm gonna replace your brake pads and send you on your way. <laughs> I don't want a statistical answer. I want you to diagnose exactly what's going on in my car because maybe it's not my brake pads. You know, maybe I need to add the brake fluid and do some other things as well. So I want you to understand what's causing things to happen in my car rather than just use this phenomenology. The pro there's a problem with this approach, practically speaking. People won't fund it uh, because it's not the way people do things. Uh, it's hard to get things published because the establishment does says, well, that's not the way people do things and so on. And yet we are. Uh, we, this is, this is our, what we try to do is, is push around the edges and innovate. And so I've answered, it's taken me a long time to answer your question, but that gives you a sense of what, what, what we're up to. Um, yeah, you've kind of like in a way described what systems biology is. So from that, I want to build on perhaps what you find to be most valuable and promising in systems biology for the future. I think, I think it is not necessarily the specifics of what we're doing. It's not the fact that I am doing a specific clinical trial to, to test a set of interventions for, say, Alzheimer's disease. The most valuable thing we're doing is reinventing the way that we're generating knowledge in science, or at least rediscovering it. Some people would argue that some of the 19th century philosophers, uh, natural philosophers, like Humboldt, for example, used many of these methods in Darwin. They generated a lot of data insofar as they could and tried to develop mechanistic hypotheses. Uh, they, were, they had much more limited data sets. They didn't have computers and artificial intelligence, but they had a much broader sense of epistemology than where we ended up in the 20th century. And so what I have to do is take all of these new modern approaches to generating data and analyzing data, build on statistics for sure, use statistics. So I don't wanna end up back in the trap of the snake oil salesman where I'm kind of waving my hands and saying, trust me. And I think the way to do that is mechanistic models. You can understand why things, why A leads to B leads to C to, to D. And in some cases it's not linear, right? Because we have very complex systems. But if I can explain why things are happening, I don't necessarily need to use statistics. And so I can, I can explain complex phenomena, phenomena uh, using systems biology. So you just mentioned that you may not need to use statistics. So are there any difficulties or problems that arise when working with so much data or? Is there like a clear path forward? There's no single clear path forward. And there's many paths forward. That's one of the beauties of being in information science and, and knowledge generation. Today, there's lots of things you can do with big data. A lot of the limitations that had been around a decade ago are starting to fall away. Like, for example, for a while, there were some issues with, you know, can you store all the data? Can you find a hard drive big enough to store that? we're not really having a problem storing data. Increasingly, the, the amount of the processing power that's available to, to science for the kinds of, of computer problems we're, we're, we're using is, is no longer limiting. In some cases, for some of the biggest AI problems, you need to have a fairly big budget, but 
for the most of what we do, I, I do a lot of my computing on my laptop. So it, generating the data is still not super cheap. You know, it's, it takes billions of dollars for big pharma to bring a drug to market. Uh, and so compared to that, we spend millions of dollars on our trial, but that's still fairly expensive. So we, we are still at a point where it's just, you can't necessarily do a lot of the research we do in your garage, although you can do many versions of it. it. Clearly, some of the things we're doing in terms of the actual algorithms, how do you build knowledge from data, in many cases is still in its infancy, sort of, but there's there's a lot of work from a lot of researchers on, on things like causality inference and systems biology. It's what what I've been doing for a few decades is building our paths forward. I think the average listener is most likely familiar with the collection and usage of our personal data by advertisers and other corporations via the internet, um, which on its own has its own ethical consequences, um, but also benefits. Do you envision a future where biodata collection and applications go beyond the sphere of research and become the norm? Probably, let me actually, can I do a footnote real quick? I remember- Yeah, of course. You clarified one of the things I said, and I did say it about not using statistics. I, I just, just so I don't get <laughs> no, <you're good. laughs> the soundbite. I totally use lots of statistics in my <laughs> I don't use exclusively statistical methods. I use lots of other methods. So is it possible we end up in a future where, say, everybody goes around with everything about them, their biological state sort of known to everybody else and known to the government and advertisers and that sort of thing? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I kind of hope not. I'm kind of a private person. I don't generally like people to know my social security number, for example. I'm, I'm always flabbergasted that people will ask for my birthday is, you know, routinely as, as, as some sort of, of, you know, password or code or something. I'm like, no, I didn't tell you my birthday. That said, it's clear that a lot of the world is moving in a direction where both consumers and companies and governments tend to either shrug or look the other way or treat these things as the norm of information sharing. So I think it's plausible that as we generate certain types of information and it becomes available that some of these entities will, I guess it's somewhat reassuring that for the most part, people's medical information does seem to be kind of sacrosanct. I mean, most your 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 hospitals generally don't share, you know, your medical records with anyone other than you or other people that need to know them. Although there's plenty of loopholes, like the insur your insurance company probably knows a lot more of, of what's going on with your medical record than you would like them to know, for example. And what if there's data breaches? I made a prediction in 2010. This is shortly after we sequenced the first full genome of a human family. So it was, it was, it was very heady at the time to have been involved in that. I was at the time, I was just at, at flabbergasted that technology had advanced so fast. I had been involved with the original human genome project back in 2000 ish, the nineties and 2000. And at the time I was felt like I was sort of like a ground controller for like the Apollo mission. Like it was really cool that I was part of it. You know, you put this person on the moon, but you're never going to the moon yourself. Right. So I helped sequence the first version of the human genome. And I was like, well, I'll never have my genome sequenced. And then 10 years later, I'm involved with sequencing for tens of thousands of dollars, peanuts at the time. I mean, comparatively a whole family and less than 10 years later, I, you know, I have my, my own genome sequenced and, you know, you guys could get your own genome sequenced for, you know, less than a thousand dollars or so if you wanted to as well. So that, I mean, that's an amazing 
change in pace of technology. But so I made the prediction in 2010 that by 2012, somebody would figure out how to get a sample from the presidential candidates. And, you know, the presidential candidates genomes would be all over the place and people would be arguing about, oh, you don't want to elect so-and-so because their gene is X or Y or Z or that sort of thing. And it hasn't happened yet. So it's, it's sort of interesting. I'm not quite sure why you think that some there's plenty. You could say there's plenty of weird people involved in politics who will stop at nothing, right? You've seen that. And so why hasn't you know one of these characters, you know, with their with their, with their black top hats, you know, gone around and secretly gotten some DNA sample and, and done that? I'm not sure. Uh, so I mean, I think we will see these kinds of people steal genetic, you know, steal biological and genetic information, and put it out there. Uh, hopefully society will respond in, in sort of severe ways and say we don't want that. Yeah, no, I suppose that a lot of new technology opens many possibilities and that doesn't mean they're all going to happen. Is there anything from your position of expertise where you can definitively say or suggest any steps we can take to prevent certain futures from happening? Nope. <laughs> I mean, I I mean, this gets kind of general away from, from biology, but I'm a big fan of, I mean, you know, this is for if somebody's listening to this 10 years from now, you know, we're talking right now as, as Russia is invading Ukraine, right? And so we're, we're thinking a lot about the, the value of liberal democracies and what they bring to humanity and their ability to, ability to create and enable ethics to be applied to, to our societies. And so I think the best thing we can do is maintain our liberal democracies and you know maintain active discourse where we're listening to every element of our society right you know when you when you don't allow segments of your society vote like so for example if you go back you know 100 years and, and even now in some places if you suppress the ability of mothers and women to vote right, you, you're losing a powerful and important aspect of of ethics and humanity and i mean that that would apply if you're suppressing any votes you're not listening to voices and so Active continued discourse uh, of and, and uh, is, I think, the most important thing uh, in in terms of preventing things. Right? You can never, in any number of philosophers and political activists, you can never be, you can never stop. Right? You have to constant vigilance is required. Your question, though, it may be more general. You know, what are there things this particular field can do to prevent abuses of medical information? A lot of that stuff is going on, right? We've created these ethics boards that review all research. And that's that's been something that has, has we're, we're constantly improving, but that's something that's fairly new, at least the, the depth and scope than, uh, of, uh, of how they're being used is, is, you know, only decades old and in response to some of the abuses of research that we've done in the mid to late 20th century, both by entities that we think of as, as hard, like Nazi Nazi research, but also to a lot of the research that went on even in the United States by the, by the US government. So having uh, ethics boards, you know, involved in, in research, thinking about how, how we want our federal government to respond to what laws we want them to create with healthcare information. I think all of those things are, are very important. This is against the backdrop where you're, where there might be someone or a voice or, or, or maybe at least in theory, you could say, well, maybe we should stop all scientific research or stop or never generate data on people uh, because it could be used for harm. 
I think that the answer to that question for a lot of biomedical data is that the value, the benefit from understanding how our bodies work and improving our health care, improving our well-being, right? Not just not getting sick, but living longer, living more healthily, not losing our minds is quite valuable. And certainly to me, in my mind, and almost everyone I talk to, they're like, yes, we do want to be healthy. We don't want disease. Uh, and so there's a bit of potentially, if there are downsides to having medical information, my general sense is the upsides are considerably greater. And now I'd like to take it back to when you're discussing having the importance of having an open discourse among society um, about these new technological issues. And I wanted to open it up to how science fiction is used as a method of generating this discourse. And, you know, talking about this genetic research, more bio-focused, it brought my mind to Gattaca and the societal impact, cultural impact that that movie had. And for people who are not familiar with Gattaca or need to brush up on what happens, this movie is set in the not-too-distant future, where a database of humans' biometric data is used to categorize humans as valids or invalids. Uh, valids have genetically modified before birth, while invalids have been born naturally. In this world, genetic discrimination is illegal, but in practice, genotype profiling is used to identify valids to qualify for professional employment while invalids are relegated to menial jobs. How realistic is Gattaca or is science fiction like Gattaca helpful or harmful to this discourse? I love science fiction. I really like uh, Frank Herbert's Dune, you know, books and, and, and obviously the movies. And that too has an element of genetic modification in it. There's this scheme by the, the Bene Gesserit to over thousands of years to breed, you know, a superhuman being, sort of this eugenics, you know, taken to a bit of an extreme. Uh, so there's there's lots of, of value in creating art, whether it's a movie or a book or, or sculpture, and, and having that help us stretch our imaginations and stimulate discourse, absolutely. One of the neat things about poetry or movies, for that matter, is I think different people see different things in it. When I, just for what it's worth, when I when I watch Gattaca, I see it as a metaphor for all discrimination, right? Because as you've described it, it, it uses genetics as a vehicle to create two classes, right? Your valid, the valids and invalids, and then for some arbitrary purpose, the the valids get more benefit from society. So when I see that, I think about okay. That's a metaphor for Black Lives Matter. That's a metaphor for women not earning as much as men. For all of the forms of discrimination, Gattaca's talking about that. Gattaca's answer to it is kind of interesting. Gattaca's answer to how to, how to solve discrimination in that particular movie is to put the burden on the individual who's discriminated against, right? The, the, per, the, the, the protagonist of that story feels the need to be, be, be smarter than everybody around him, to try harder, to strive hard. And he eventually, through his personal efforts, succeeds in going to the stars. Um, it's very kind of Ayn Rand, sort of the individual conquers everything sort. And that's wonderful, right? It's a great story for, for all of us who want to succeed against the forces that are pushing against us. Uh, and I'm all, I'm all in favor of, of personal advancement. People who are dealing with discrimination would, would argue, you know, particularly some of these systemic issues would say, it's not just the person who's being discriminated against has some responsibility to deal with the system, but really you want to modify the system as a whole. So for me, that movie, when people say, how does, you know, how should Gattaca inform ethics? I would say, 
you know, we have some pretty big discrimination issues in society and the least of, the, maybe not the least, but well down the list, you know, after you check off gender and, and race and ethics and so on, you get to genetic discrimination. So let's, let's definitely work on these big, huge discrimination problems while we're also thinking about not having to deal with genetic discrimination. Could we, could we have genetic discrimination? I think it's plausible, right? Let's say that we have, particularly like, in a, imagine you've got some sort of totalitarian government, right, that hates Jewish people. It could say, wow, I'm going to sequence everyone's genome. It's mandatory. We'll shoot you if you don't give us some blood and sequence your genome. And anyone who's got a genetic signature of having been an Ashkenazi Jew and those genetic signatures exist, we'll just shoot you too. You know, I, we saw Nazis do similar things. They didn't sequence your genome. But so I think we, we live in, a, a, unfortunately, human, there are humans that might do things like that. I guess it's it's a risk, right? Along with all the other forms of discrimination we have. It, I think, again, this is the sort of thing you, you, you've got to control at society level, right? You, it, it'd be very hard to put the cat back in the box or the genie back in the bottle, or whatever the right, right metaphor is, of saying, uh, we're, we're not gonna learn how to sequence people's genomes because it could lead to discrimination. We've already done that. We've already, we've got that knowledge. And, and again, I think the value of sequencing people's genomes because it gives us such tremendous power to uh, help people with genetic disease and and there's many many other wonderful things that come out of of being able to sequence genomes it, it's not the sort of thing where you say let's not let's not learn this information but let's learn how to how to how to deal with it in a, in a in a responsible way what are the ethical implications of having the ability to diagnose diseases that we don't have cures for or potentially telling someone like there's a chance you'll have this this disease, but we don't really know for certain. So those are two very different questions. Okay, yeah. Take the first question. I think it's interesting because that's what I was taught in the twenty. I learned. I, I went to medical school in the twentieth century. I'm that old, and I was taught, you, you know, this ethic of oh, don't test for something that you can't treat, whether it was a genetic test or any test. I shouldn't. I shouldn't try, if I can't treat something, there's no reason to, to learn about it or tell somebody the risk of it because there's nothing you can do. Uh, and that I think may have been true in the 20th century. And I think it's no longer true. There's no such thing in the 21st century of a disease that we can do nothing about, right? Because, I mean, I met, I met a young high school student a, a few years ago who was doing a, a project along these lines. And I was talking with, with her and saying, well, you know, you're learning about these diseases, but uh, you know, what if you learn that you have a disease that that you can't treat? And she looked at me and said, "Well, then I'll devote my life to curing it." And I was like, "Okay, <laughs> well, that's so." There's all currently, and we live in a world where that's plausible, right? It's not like, "Oh, that's impossible. You can't possibly learn how to treat it." I'm like, I'm totally aware. Using systems biology, the other tools, you got a hundred years of life, or sixty, or seventy, or eighty, or how many of ahead of you? There's no longer any such thing a disease you can't do anything about, right? And if you yourself don't want to go and become a, a researcher, there's any number of ways you can advance science, right? You can support it politically, you can support it economically. And so I don't really have a problem anymore with learning about diseases, even if there's no current therapy. The And, and furthermore, there, I'm actually beginning to believe that there's almost always some things that you can do. And some of them seem simple and, and, and obvious, but, but it's amazing how effective things like eliminating sugar from your diet is and how, how effective that is for so many diseases, right? Just getting more healthy in general. 
And so even though we we're used to thinking in terms of magic pills from the pharmaceutical companies that cure things, I think the future is not just going to be about magic pills, and it's also going to be about learning about diseases and personalizing things. So I think the future is very bright. Now, the second question you asked was, what about probabilities, right? Let's say I don't have this perfect knowledge of, of some particular disease or medicine, which is true in so many cases. Alzheimer's disease is a great case where we know quite a bit about the disease, but still everything is kind of vague and uncertain. And so let's say that I know enough to tell somebody they got a 10% chance of getting Alzheimer's disease or something, right? Should I tell that person? And again, if I think about personalizing medicine, right? So if I, I we talked earlier about how everybody who has Alzheimer's might have it for a slightly different reason, and they might need slightly different therapies to help them with either to prevent or to cure or, or ameliorate their Alzheimer's disease. The same is true with information. There's some people who totally want to know they have a 10% chance of Alzheimer's. Other people who totally don't want to know. And there's also, it's not just whether people want to know or don't want to know. Different people have different understandings of how they receive information in math, right? There's plenty of people out there that don't really have a good understanding of what 10% means, right? Or how to use it, right? And so how do you communicate probabilistic information is something that we face in a lot of fields of science and actually elsewhere in society. And I think it needs to be personalized. You see that a lot of, in weather reporting. You know, what, you don't see a lot of weather reports where they give you the exact percent of rain, but you can find them like on Weather Underground, I think you can, but most weather reports will say there's a, you know, there's a slight chance of rain tomorrow or whatever. And so how, so the short answer to the probabilistic information is, you know, there's not a one size fits all. You, you really have to think about who you're communicating with and how they respond to it. You'll even run into people like, let's say you're going to go hiking in the mountains and you say, you know, one out of a million people get struck by lightning you know, they're hiking in the mountains. And, and now all they can think about for the whole hike is the fact they might get struck by lightning, right? So they're perseverating on this really remote chance that, that they actually, the risk of getting a car crash was far greater driving to the hike. But now you're dealing with someone who just can't stop thinking about that. And so clearly that person is not someone you're also going to want to say, oh, and by the way, you have a 2% chance of getting Alzheimer's disease. You know? So I don't know if there's any... The correct answer is to personalize everything. The, the other answer that's related to that is to have decent societal norms to start with, right? Because you, uh, you, you might want to say, well, in general, most people in our society don't want to know if they have a less than a 2% chance of getting some sort of disease. They don't want to just think about that. Uh, and so if that's sort of your societal norm, you might start by saying, in general, we're not going to share that with you. Unless you come to me and say, look, you know, I really want to know this information, you know, then I think you should share it. I'm not a big fan of paternalistic laws where the law might say you as a doctor may not share this particular type of information with your patient under any circumstances. Generally speaking, I think people have the right to, to know information if they want that information. You mentioned personalizing healthcare. Have you seen this starting people starting to apply personalized healthcare and how is this changing medicine yeah i think it's already become standard for a number of of areas of medicine and almost so standard that we don't necessarily think about it as personalization but a couple of like like think about hypertension is one of the major things that the, the major health issues that we face as, as a nation in the world right now 
we understand a lot about the different causes of hypertension from a molecular and a physiological uh, method. And when somebody comes to us with hypertension, we know we need to treat it in almost all cases and that people will be more healthy if we treat it. And generally speaking, we personalize that therapy for hypertension. So we might say, why don't you start off by working on some diet and I'll give you this particular medicine. We'll see how it goes. And I might start somebody, somebody else with a different approach. I might have them do more exercise and, and different medicine. Uh, and of course, part of personalization is we, we see how it goes, right? And we measure maybe what's going on with your blood and your hypertension over time. And then we tweak, tweak the, the therapy. And so it ends up being sort of a personalized, we'll find the best fit for you to control your hypertension. We do the same thing for people with diabetes to control their blood sugars. Uh, we do uh, similar things for people with high cholesterol. And so personalized medicine has already been here, either by that name or by other names. So Generally speaking, I think it is a great way to do medicine. So just like personalizing, just like understanding what's wrong with your car is a great way to fix your car. What are some ethical consequences of the mass collection of biodata we could see arise in the near future? Or are there any? Well, I mean, this is going off on a limb a little bit, but technology advances so fast, <laughs> you know, sometimes going off on a limb ends up being what happens three years in the future. I don't follow this field terribly closely, but there's there's the really advanced artificial intelligence that people are developing where if you're Microsoft or other big entities that have lots and lots of computers, you can put together, you know, multi-million dollar clusters of computers that can start pulling information out of big data sets that rival the kind of insights that, that humans can do. And so it might not be very long before these machines are I'm not quite sure how you define smart, but smarter than us, that I can give one of these big, huge clusters of machines massive amounts of, of bio data. Is that the, the term of art you're using? And it might generate new insights. It might figure out a cause of Alzheimer's disease that I haven't imagined, right? And some of those insights might surprise us or disturb us, right? Because uh, you, you end up with thinking in, in brand new ways. I play a game of I play this game called Go. It's this Asian game, uh, Go in Japan. And very recently, some of these artificial intelligence programs became better at playing Go than the best human players. And they would play moves that us human players were like, wow, we wouldn't have played that move. I wonder why it's playing that move. It's And, and to some extent, we still don't fully understand why the machines are playing these moves that are clearly better than ours. And so... I guess the question is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, and are there, it's clear, I mean, it's pretty easy to see why it might be good, right? It'd be pretty cool if this machine could figure out the cause of Alzheimer's disease when we couldn't. Do we really want machines that are, that are smarter than us? Are there downsides? I haven't fully thought that one out yet. It may actually be something that we don't have a lot of control over. That might just be something that just happens because of the way our society is built. Yeah, that definitely poses a really interesting question, especially when we have things that could be more intelligent than us, giving us information that almost we can't work with, just that we have to take as fact and questioning whether we really want that information or not if we aren't able to act on it. So I guess, you know, one place you haven't gone in, in is genetic modification, right? That's, an, that's mm -hmm. often part of these conversations. We talked a little bit about Gattaca and, and where somebody might 
use genetic information to discriminate against somebody. But what happens when we actually have the ability to edit our own genomes, change the nature of who we are? I mean, if I'm worried about what happens when we make machines that are smarter than us, what happens when we make other humans that are smarter than us? Or if we could make them, what should we? You know, and, and if somebody else makes them, how should we respond? Uh, it's seeming like those sorts of things are possible. We already have gene therapy, which I'm a big fan of, right? If somebody is born with sickle cell anemia, this horrible disease, and I can change their somatic genes, genes that they're not going to pass on to their children so that I cure their sickle cell anemia and they live a wonderful life instead of a miserable life, uh, I'm all in favor of that, right? And we've, we've got some examples where we've done exactly that in science. And but you say, okay, well, that's clearly good. I can't really find any downsides to that. But what about the slippery slope of, well, what if they want to have kids? Should I allow them to change their genes so that their kids don't have sickle cell anemia? I'm not sure. You could talk about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. And then you run into people that said, well, I want to edit my, my you know, I'm going to use in vitro fertilization, but I, I want to edit my kids' genomes and, and make sure they have blonde hair or whatever, or or by the way, can you make it so they have more muscles or that maybe even they're smarter, right? What, where, where can we go? The more understanding we have of genetics, the more people can tinker with these things. And then you have a whole bunch, you know, clearly we're not gonna get into that today, but there's lots of, of scope for ethical discussion of what, what should we do? What should we allow? Uh, what should we be thinking of um, with the capability of, of editing our germline? Because it's clearly out there. This, this possibility. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Roach. Sure thing. It's been a pleasure talking with you.